welcome to the EMJ podcast. My name is Simon Cowley and today I'm going to be taking you through the best of the journal from March 2020. Now you're probably familiar with the primary survey, it's our introduction to the journal and to give you an idea of what's worth reading and what's worth investigating. So this month we've got it from Ed Carlton, one of the associate editors, and he's picked out those papers and ideas that have really caught his eye for this particular month. And I hope they sort of entice you to go on and read a little bit more. Now, Ed, like myself and many of my other colleagues, are really quite interested in clinical prediction tools. We think it's one of the, actually one of the major ways that we've changed our practice of emergency medicine over the last decade. And traditionally, these take a fairly common condition and they identify clinical factors to justify further testing. We're pretty much familiar with that. But it's interesting to see how and where they can be applied. So there's a really interesting paper this month which focuses on what is thankfully an uncommon condition, abusive head trauma in children and evaluates a prediction rule applied to a population of 87 children with a confirmed intracranial injury on neuroimaging. And whilst you could argue that the numbers are in this prospective external validation study from Australia appear small, they are, it's only 87 patients, it's important to recognise that the high proportion of abusive head trauma within their cohort, about 30%, allows for some validation of the what's known as the predictive abusive head trauma tool, or the PRED-AHT. So based on six clinical features often associated with abusive head trauma, such as bruising and renal hemorrhages, the PRE-AT school tool gives a sensitivity of 74%, probably not high enough to rule out the target condition, and a specificity of 87%, which is pretty good actually. However, there's a really good editorial accompanying this paper by Fionn Davis, and she points out that the emergency clinician remains reliant on a number of more subtle factors, such as social red flags and inconsistencies with the history, to correctly identify the child at risk of abuse. And I think you always have to be careful with papers like this, because they're not necessarily looking at the undifferentiated group of patients who turn up in the ED. So... Taking a group of patients in whom you know have already got the, the abusive head trauma and looking at prediction factors, well, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult and different to a whole range of patients who can come through the door. And I think that's Fionn's argument here. And, and it's one I would agree with. I think from an emergency medicine perspective, we have to be vigilant of this. And I'm sure many of you out there will have seen these cases and also been involved in cases where it's been difficult to spot. So moving on and continuing a bit of a paediatric head injury theme this month, uh, the next article is a planned, so that's good, secondary analysis of over 20,000 children presenting to 10 Australasian emergency departments with head injury. And the authors were looking to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy of the GCS, our famous Glasgow Coma Scale, in predicting traumatic brain injury. And despite a very low incidence of traumatic brain injury in this cohort, about 1.3%, which is probably a bit more realistic in terms of what we see, and a preponderance of children with a GCS of 15, 95.4% of them had that GCS of 15, which again is, is kind of what I see. The GCS, even despite all of those things, the GCS had an area under the curve approaching 0.8 or above for the prediction of traumatic brain injury, which in the whole scheme of diagnostic tests isn't bad, actually. And uh, that also predicts brain injury, mortality and the need for neurosurgery. So pretty good for the GCS, which has often been described as a fairly blunt tool. It was developed in adults. It was developed in Glasgow. Ed suggests there's a, an association with alcohol use amongst Glaswegians. I'm not going to comment on that. I think it's fairly universal, to be honest. But yeah, not bad. Um, again, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be a tool which you're going to use in isolation, but it's a helpful thing. And it does tell us of the use of the GCS and these ideas. Then we're moving on to the editor's choice, actually, um, this month, which allows us to look at the clotting cascade again. And I'm sure you can all recite the clotting cascade. Can you? Can you? 
No, no, not me either. And in particular, looking at the role of fibrinolysis in major trauma. And that's important because it, it's the potential to provide sort of fairly unique insights into how tranexamic acid might work in these patients and the whole world of the controversies around tranexamic acid. You either believe in it or you don't. I do. So I give it to a lot of my patients. And I think the recent trials also suggest that we should be giving it to probably more. So this is a hypothesis generating study of 52 injured patients looking at detailed retrospective sample analysis of the mechanisms of fibrolysis. And it's allowed them to, to propose the existence of an early, what they call the antifibrinolytic gap, with the natural antifibrinolytic system lagging several be hours behind the natural profibrinolytic, so they're not necessarily in balance. And it's proposed that the early dose of TXA, tranexamic acid, may fill this gap and may explain why cheap, easily available, easily to administer drug is apparently, in the view of many, but not all, so effective. And so take-home points here around the early administration of tranexamic acid and not restricting prescription to only those who are most severely injured should be heeded by all, in Ed's opinion. But again, it's a controversial one and it's a, it's a subject of great debate, tranexamic acid. I, as I say, I'm fairly convinced by the evidence, but not everybody is. And uh, again, go out there and read it yourself, make your own mind up or follow the guidelines, whichever works for you. Now, moving on, there's a continued drive to justify the added value of pre-hospital care teams, which is interesting because there's loads of them. And the resources are scarce, costly, and often funded through charitable donations, but they seem to be increasing. And they, certainly if you follow social media, they seem to be absolutely everywhere. But of course they're not, and they don't operate 24-7 in all places. And it's patchy, and the skill mix, and all of these kind of things vary depending on what your health economy is. However, the evidence, and I've looked at this over a number of years, for actually how effective they are is actually quite difficult to pick out. And there's lots of reasons for that. It's, it's actually quite a difficult study to determine. And so we have to look at things like study uh, retrospective um, database studies. And that's what we've got this month. We've got a retrospective trauma database analysis from Scotland. It's open access, which is great. And it's evaluating the mortality benefit um, to patients with multiple injuries. And it's interesting Whilst only 4.5% of patients received physician-led pre-hospital critical care, there is at least a signal following multivariate analysis that this intervention provides some mortality benefit at 35 days. Odd ratio 0.56 and the confidence intervals don't pass one. So, yeah, it's a suggestion there. Always difficult with retrospective database studies, of course. The dispatch criteria for who goes and which patients they get sent to, those should be dealt with in the multivariate analysis, but there's always going to be that sort of suspicion. So I think this is increasing evidence that what appears to be blatantly obvious probably does work, but it will be critically appraised and critiqued by many, I'm sure. Have a read for yourself and see what you think. Now, moving on again, we've got another really interesting paper, which I handle actually around cranial trephination. Yep making holes in your head. Now, this has been around from 8,000 um, years before Christ, unbelievably. And Mike Avanathy did a great editorial on this, and you can read some of the, the background history on this. Anyway, this month, we've got a, a short report on the use of this the, from Ireland of evacuating an extradural hematoma through the burr holes, but not by the neurosurgeons, by the emergency department, because, wow, you know, why could this not be done? And their argument is, well, we should... And uh, Mark Wilson, who's not on this paper, but has often said that uh, things like extradurals are really the tension pneumothorax of the brain. And you wouldn't possibly imagine not draining a tension pneumothorax. That would be crazy. So why do we 
leave patients for long periods of time with a, uh, a pressure issue in the brain and not drain it. Now, lots of controversy about that. This is going to raise a few eyebrows, I'm sure. But it's not a new innovation. And our Swing Shift article brings to the fore this controversial topic. So the key, really, to this report is around the geographical remoteness of the emergency departments, in this case being over 250 kilometres from the nearest neurosurgical centre. Very different to where I am, where we're about three and a half miles away from the nearest neurosurgical centre. Or in kids, they're on the same site. So different questions for different health economies. So whilst this article provides an excellent algorithm for decision-making in this situation, I agree with Ed that I'm pretty thankful that I... I don't know, am I thankful? I think it's good having close neurosurgical colleagues, but... Even when you're, even when they're close, any transport time is a problem. So, have a look at this one. It, it, there's a good argument for for draining these at an early stage. Now, whether that can be done safely and consistently is a separate question. But it's good to see the question asked, and I think it's a great paper to get that debate going. So, we've done a lot of trauma. Let's move away from trauma, and it's fantastic to see another excellent piece of work funded through a ARCHEM, that's the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, of course, research grant come to fruition. Matt Chandy and colleagues presented a robust systematic review looking at the evidence for non-invasive techniques to stimulate the often elusive urine samples in young children. I think there's a quote, isn't there? I think there's a hashtag, isn't there? Hashtag waiting for urine, which is like a whole world of PED medicine waiting for the urine. And whilst they demonstrate a proof of concept for such techniques, there appears to be more research required in this area. So we don't have the perfect technique. Although if you get onto YouTube when you get onto Twitter, you'll see lots of different um, varying methods including tapping suprapubically, etc. So have a read of that because waiting for urine is a bit of a pain in the PED. And then finally, in spring 2020, the organ donation law in England is changing to an opt-out system. And some insights into what this may mean for our practice in emergency medicine in the UK are discussed in this month's concepts paper by Matt Reed and colleagues from Edinburgh. The potential for the law to change and to increase donation rates could be great, and if lessons from this single pilot centre are heeded, they could really be amazing and it could make a radical difference to how we do transplant medicine. And being married to a uh, fabulous surgeon who does transplants, it would make a big difference. And I really hope that it goes through. So have a read of all of those things. Have a look at the rest of the stuff in the journal. Do enjoy your emergency medicine and come back again soon. And yeah, get in touch. Tweet us, contact us on Facebook and just let us know how you're getting on. Have fun. Have fun.